This is, should be, should be, okay? Now, don't hold me to that. The last message in Zechariah. My plan was to make this the last one in Zechariah. But there are some places where I could get out of control. And, and so I don't know that that's going to happen. I don't know about you, but here we are at the very end of Zechariah. Uh, for me, this has been an uh, extremely wonderful journey. Uh, to be able to go through this book, uh, something I had never studied before. When I was in seminary, we didn't go through Zechariah. We didn't have to do that. I had other books that we looked at in Hebrew, but not that one. And this one here is just absolutely gives us an insight into where we are today and where we're going to be. And I hope you see that with me. The book of Zechariah obviously is written to the Hebrew nation. It's not written to Gentiles, but Gentiles are there. They're all over the place. Um, the one insight that has stood out to me about this study is the fabulous, in this fabulous prophecy is the accuracy over and over again. Some things that we've seen, okay, they've come true, and then some things that will come true, but they're out there in the future. When God says it, God accomplishes it, and there's no getting around that. What he says, he's going to follow through on, and we shouldn't ever think that he wouldn't do that. With that in mind, there is much more that is going on here prophetically. It's going to happen that in the future we're going to see these various things. We were even talking this morning about you know, COVID and, and, and what's happening in the world and all of this kind of stuff. And I said, I see hints of things going on. Um, I'm, I don't know if it's a prelude to the um, uh, tribulation or not. I have no idea. I have no idea. But it looks that way. And I know that for 2,000 years, people have been th- saying that. So I'm just joining in on the chorus of 2,000 years. The Christian world ought, okay, to be preaching the soon coming of Christ, they should be looking into that fact that that is going to happen soon. I would hope that that would get the attention of folks that are out in the world. That would get attention of folks that are in the church who don't know Jesus Christ. It should encourage us, knowing that Christ is returning soon, in the very negative atmosphere. And we are in a negative atmosphere. Does anybody notice that we're in a negative atmosphere Okay, around the world, around this country, it it, it is. But if we knew that Jesus Christ was going to return on Monday morning at 7 o'clock, I don't know about you, but I I would just want to worship for the rest of the time so I could be more prepared to be with him. But you see, that's that's not what we do. We don't think it's going to be at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning or 7 o'clock tonight or whatever. But we should be thinking in those kinds of terms, There is a need to know him, folks. There is a need to know him. You cannot read enough about the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot read enough about the Godhead that will ever finish up your whole life. I don't care how long you live. You can keep reading about it, reading about it, reading about it, knowing about it, understanding it more and more, and you're still going to be left empty when you see him face to face. You're still going to be bereft of all the knowledge that you really need to have about the Lord Jesus Christ. But his return, I can guarantee this, is getting closer and closer. And so we need to be studying Jesus. We need to be looking at things that will enlighten us to his return. 
you will notice in this text that we're going to be reading here in a minute, I'm going to highlight a particular word. This is not something I normally do, but I'm, I'm going to do it here since the last message. There's a word in this text that is throughout the whole text, and it's an unusual word for us. It's plague, plague. This is not what we are experiencing here today in COVID-19, folks. That is not a plague, okay? This is a real plague. This is something that will have immediate consequences. Now, I took this out of the doctor's dictionary, I think. I'm not even sure. But plague is a disease that affects humans and other mammals. It is caused by the bacterium Yersinia pistis. Okay, I actually, did I get it right, doctor? Close, okay. I, I got it close. Humans usually get plague after being bitten by a rodent flea. Not by the rodent, by a rodent flea that is carrying the plague bacterium or by handling an animal infected with plague. So you don't want to be holding on to an animal too long that has plague. Keep that in mind, folks. Keep that in mind as we read through the text. And let's do that. Zechariah chapter 14, starting in verse 12. Now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouth. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall upon them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted up against the hand of the other. Judah also will fight against Jerusalem, will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments, in great abundance. So also, like this plague, will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and the cattle that will be in those camps. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. In the family of Egypt, if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then it, uh, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. In that day, they will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. Sounds a little confusing. What in the world is going on here? But if we look at it in the light of Scripture, look at it in the light of what we've already seen, it's, it's really a curious read, one that 
I mean, I kept reading it over and over and over again. Before I even start to study it, I want to read it again and again and again. You see, the plague is how God is going to deal with the enemies of Israel. That we can figure out. He's going to, he's going to begin to cleanse the enemies of Israel. In a sense, he's also going to start to cleanse the creation. We, uh, as we study this famous and fabulous portion of Scripture, we will see three steps, okay, three steps that accomplish the cleansing necessary to worship the king. There are three steps that happen here in this, as we work through this process of looking at this scripture. This is the cleansing of God's people. In a sense, again, it's a cleansing of the creation. The first step is this, the enemies of God are punished. The enemies of God are punished. We see that in verses 12 through 15. The second step is the people of God are purified. We see that in verses 16 through 19. And then the city of God is pure, verse 20 through 21. We've gone to Israel a few times, and when we go to Israel, we call it the holy city. It's not holy right now, folks, but one day it will be the holy city. One day it will be the holy city. As you read through the passage here and. This plague seems to spread fairly rapidly and with disastrous effects. It does not mention death, but it certainly sounds like it's death. It certainly sounds that it's pretty awful. The first step is the enemies of God are punished for coming against him. That's what happens. They begin to be punished, the enemies of God. We see that in verse 12. Now, this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against them. If you have been following, and I hope you have, folks, it's online. You can go back to Zechariah. You know, we've already done all of the the whole book, so you can go back there. But in Zechariah 14.2, it said this. For I will gather all the nations. Those are the nations that are coming against Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. So God's even called them to do the battle. And the city will be captured. They're going to take the city. The houses will be plundered. The women ravished. And half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. So this is something God's already put into play. And he's already working on it. The enemies of God probably feel pretty good about themselves right now. They've taken the city. They've taken the women. They've taken the goods. They've taken the children even. They begin to slaughter the people that are in Jerusalem. They're having a field day. They are destroying property. They are pillaging both the rich and the poor. There are horrible acts of devastation going on and, and despicableness that we can't even mention here, but that's what's going on. But now God intervenes. God intervenes. He steps into the actions that are going on here, and in a miraculous way, he brings a plague. None of us would ever think that that's a good thing to do, but he brings a plague because it's going to figure into his purposes. Everyone, everyone who has picked up a weapon against Jerusalem, God will now strike. These people with a plague, they will now be overcome with this plague. All these people. Friends, plague does not immediately kill. It does not immediately kill. Do you know today, 
as we're reading this, there are probably approximately 600 cases of plague yearly around the world. And any particular place in the world, you could find plague. It's already there. It's already there. At that level, the cases can be dealt with. It's not going to spread. It's not going to become like COVID-19 and spread and all that kind of stuff. However, can you imagine? When it strikes all the peoples who have come up against Jerusalem, the World Health Organization will not know how to handle it. They will be unable to handle anything like that. God is going to use it as a punishment on those people for coming against his people. Here's what's going to happen, verse 12. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. I don't know about you, but I'm never going to pick up a sword against Jerusalem because I don't feel like rotting like that. That is not a pretty picture. That's a pretty awful picture is what it is. As a matter of fact, I don't even know if Hollywood could put something together that would be able to portray something like this. This is in the future. This is going to happen, and it's going to happen to the enemies of Israel. Charles Feinberg, Pastor John's mentor when he was going to college, I'm sorry, to seminary, said this. He said, it will be a living death. It will be a living death. Why does he say that? Because the scripture says nothing about them dying. They're going to be living with this. The rotting of your eyeballs, the rotting of your cheeks, the rotting of your flesh. It doesn't say that they're going to die. It just describes a horrific plague rotting the bodies of their enemies. And certainly, folks, you don't ever want to be an enemy of Israel. In this kind of condition, that is plague, their attention will be drawn to self as it's never been before. That's their problem to begin with is that they're focused on self, but it will be drawn to self and not to the battle. They're going to give up on the battle. That's what the reason for the plague is. They're going to give up on the battle. The plague is sudden, boom, like that. The CDC and the, and the WHO, and I don't mean the musical group, um, have no weapons against this, no weapons against this kind of plague. Israel's enemies will rot before their eyes. Could you imagine standing there as a, in defense of Jerusalem and seeing these people begin to rot in front of you? You're wondering what in the world is going on. Now, God doesn't stop there. God doesn't stop there. Verse 13. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them. And they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted up against the other. There's a great panic that comes over them as, as they begin, their bodies begin to rot. There's this panic comes over them, and there's the hearing of some kind of a loud roar. You don't see that in the text, but that's what's happening here. There's a loud roar, because I think... Okay, if you're a human being and your skin starts to rot, you're going to start to scream. That, does that, does that, it just seems natural that you're going to start to scream and yell. There's going to be a great panic, in, and that is the roar that happens here. The Hebrew even insinuates this loud roar, and they begin to attack one another. They begin to attack one another. They turn on each other. 
You see, in confusion and dismay, that's what's going to happen. They grab a hold of one another in this fight. God often uses confusion to overthrow those who are in opposition to him. Just to give you a couple of there, chapter 7, we see Gideon, and, and God keeps uh, making his army smaller and smaller and smaller. And he's got to come against this great army. And guess, guess what God uses? He uses a horn, a loud horn, and throws him into confusion. 1 Samuel 14.20 also is a, another place where God does the same thing in bringing um, the enemy uh, to confusion. And 1420 says this, Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a great confusion. The swords coming together, clanging together, and all that happens is there's a great confusion that happens. This confusion, this delirium that uh, goes on is unprecedented here in Zechariah. This is a confusion wrought by God. Therefore, it's going to be the most severe kind. It's going to be a devastating kind. I want you to marvel at what God is doing here. He's throwing these people into panic. Do you think we have any people around here that get thrown into panic? I mean, you think about it. The idiots who riot in the streets display utter confusion sometimes. They start turning on one another and you see them throwing things and hurting each other sometimes, swinging baseball bats and hitting each other, those kinds of things. That to me is is idiot work, okay? They're in a delirium. All I want to do is inflict pain and hurt. And guess what? They wind up hurting each other. They wind up hurting each other. What if... What if there were an actual disease that rotted the flesh right in front of you? I'm not talking about COVID. But what if it was an actual disease that rotted the flesh right in front of you? Do you know, can you imagine the super panic we would be in now? We we would not only not leave our home, we would not even go to the grocery store to get food. We'd rather starve than have somebody that's got rotting flesh in front of you. That's what we're talking about here. Super panic is going on. In a sense, this reminds me something of happens with King Hezekiah and 2 Kings. 185,000 soldiers have been brought against him. And guess what? God sends one angel, kills them all. That's what this plague is. Boom, done. A few commentators, now, a few commentators have suggested Okay, all of those commentators that were after 1950 that I read, (laughs) they would say that there was a sudden unprecedented um, plague because there was a nuclear attack. Ah, sounds interesting. Um, Years ago, we had uh, the opportunity to go over to Japan, and we were serving uh, Sushi Kondo in Osaka, and he said, Bill, what would you like to do for the day that we have off? You know, he was teaching... Uh, On the weekend and on Tuesday, we're supposed to start in the conference. He says, we have Monday off. What would you like to do? I said, could I go to Hiroshima? I I mean, I've been reading history since I can't even remember. I read that instead of school books. And, And he said, sure. We get on the bullet train, and it was a bullet train, and went down to Hiroshima. And I got to tell you, folks, it was overwhelming. The pictures of rotting flesh. 
of seeing people that are having flesh falling off of them. It was overwhelming. So that's a possibility that it was a nuclear attack, but I don't believe it was, and I don't believe it's going to be. If it were a nuclear attack, guess what? God's people would be at risk as well. God's people would be able to be attacked or, or be able to have that, that um, uh, nuclear waste coming on them. So I don't think so. Even if it were a nuclear attack, Zechariah does not give an explanation of the rotting flesh. Zechariah also doesn't tell us they were dying. In Hiroshima, some of those people died instantly. Some of them lived for a long time. How could it even be described? It doesn't stop here with the rotting flesh. This eschatological plan that God has these folks going through, he continues to unfold this plan. Verse 14, verse 14 back in Zechariah, he says this, Judah also will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. Judah, if you remember, has been separated from Jerusalem. They now go to support their brothers, okay? And they go to fight with them. Folks, in ancient times, they brought everything with them. If you were to go to the battlefield today, against an enemy, I don't think you would bring along your checkbook. I don't think you'd bring along your bank account. I don't think you'd bring along your uh, expensive cars. I don't think you'd bring along your ATM cards. But they did. They did. They brought them all with them. They brought everything with them. Because in ancient times, wherever you were was your home. So when they went to war, they had everything with them. They had their silver, their gold, their garments in abundance. And so they were there. And what happens is when you lose, the conqueror gets to take all of your stuff. By the way, if, if you were to go to battle, we would leave it in our storage bins before we leave. They didn't have storage bins. They couldn't ask their neighbor, can you take care of my house for me while I'm gone? Yeah, the, 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 the neighbor would take care of their house and everything in it, they would take with them. They would take it from them. Interesting, Zechariah leaves one item off of the list of the booty that would normally be taken in in, in a battle of the ancient times, and it's the animals. That's strange that he would do that. In all ancient battles, that's one of the major things that they would take because that feeds the family, that takes care of being able to sell, being able to continue um, um, have more animals, but the animals are not included here. Verse 15, so also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and the cattle that will be in those camps. Guess what? That booty is taken care of by God by rotting their flesh as well. The enemies of God now have their animals affected with the plague, making them weaker and weaker and more vulnerable. Even God's creation comes here and, and begins to be involved in this eschatological ending. 
It too is going to be liberated from the bondage of sin. It too is going to be cleansed. It's being taken care of. So here we have the first step. Now the second step in the cleansing happens when the people uh, begin to worship the king, King Jesus. The people of God are purified. We see that in 16 through 19. So let's look at 16. Then it will come about that any who are left of all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The people of God are being purified. Folks, these are not the soldiers. These are not the warriors. These are the folks that were left at home. They come to their senses. They stop sending men into battle. They stop sending women into battle. Just a footnote here for our observation. It says, all the nations that went up against Jerusalem. This does not indicate a quantity of people. In other words, all of the United States didn't go to Jerusalem and fight. It says all the diversity of peoples that went all the diversity of peoples that went, all the different kinds of people went. doesn't mean everybody from the United States went there. What are, where do they go? They go to the city of God. They go to the city of God. And what do they do? Let's look at it. They, they go to worship and celebrate at the Feast of Booths. Folks, this happens in the Millennial Kingdom. Here we are. We're coming into the millennial kingdom. I got to tell you, I can't wait to see the millennial kingdom. But you know what, folks? Everything's not going to be perfect in the millennial kingdom either. Here we are going into the millennial kingdom. This happens now, I want you to get it straight, before the eternal state. Okay, they're going to have a thousand years of millennial kingdom. Let's talk about the Feast of Booths. I took this off of a website uh, from Ligonier Ministries. They give us a little bit of an insight into what the Feast of Booths are. Um, as some of you know, I had a lot of contact with Jewish people in New York. I went to a, a Seder once uh, with uh, the Perlmans, that's what their name was, in Brooklyn, okay? I mean, it was a real Seder, and we're sitting there, and there's an empty seat here, and there's all of this stuff happening. And so I'm asking questions like crazy. So what is this empty seat? Well, that's for Elijah. What's this? What's this? And what's this? And they're telling me all these things, and I'm, I'm having a great old time. I got to tell you, it was just absolutely wonderful. I was not a believer then. Uh, I wished I had been a believer to be able to speak into those things. But they have all of these different traditions here and there to why pass it on to the next generation. You look at the men that are leaving the battle in, in Cana and they're going across the Jordan River and they build all of these rocks and that was so that their children would remember why they were doing that. They were doing it to conquer the land that God had given to them. And so over and over again, you have those kinds of things. So here we are at the Feast of Booths. And I'm re- going to quote here from Legionnaire Air Ministry. It says, few of the feasts that were a part of old covenant worship were as joyful as the Feast of Booths. By the way, the reason I said all that stuff about the Seder, I never saw a Jewish person uh, celebrating this. Interestingly, and all the time that I was in a Jewish textile company, never heard them even talk about this. 
So I, I wish I could go back and even ask them there, what was this Feast of Booths? It's also known as the Feast of Tabernacles or by its Hebrew name, Sukkot. Okay, this celebration was the, fat, the last of the fall festivals and was held at the end of the agricultural year when the grapes and the olives were harvested in Israel. This was a time to thank God for all the preceding year's provision, for all that God had done. So they had this celebration. They went into these tents. Let me read it some more. Primarily, however, Sukkot was designed to remember the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan when God made the people live in booths. During the time of the feast, each Israelite family was supposed to construct a booth, a a sukkah is what they were called, and live in it for a week. These booths were small temporary shelters with thatched roofs of palm fronds and other plants. Sukkot's purpose to remember the wilderness journey. That's what it was about, always to remember what happened in the past, how God provided for them. That's what it's about. And and that's what they want to look back on is what did God do for us? At the Feast of Booths, the Israelites gave up the comforts of their homes in order to commemorate God's salvation. This is a reminder that in order to be redeemed, the people of the Lord must surrender certain things. Listen to that. In order to be redeemed, the people of the Lord must surrender certain things. We must give up self-reliance and selfishness. That's what's named here. We must turn from our idols and from the comforts of our sin. Unless we repent, turning from such things unto the Redeemer, we cannot be saved. That's the Legionnaire ministry. Sukkot is a seven-day festival. It's a festival of thanksgiving. It's a festival of thanksgiving for the harvest and what God had blessed them with. Those nations that were in opposition to God and the things of God will now yearly, listen to this, will now yearly go up to the city of God to worship him in the millennial kingdom. That's what they're going to do. The high and the holy king, the Lord of hosts, will now be visited yearly by the representatives of the various countries, those countries that are left, and they will have somebody go up there. The conversion of these peoples is affirmed by their regular devotion to worshiping the Lord. These are the survivors of all the nations. They they will worship him, they will recognize him, and he will have complete lordship over them. Now, some have said it is impossible for all the nations to go up, worship in Jerusalem, It's a monstrous impossibility to get all the people there. Of course it is. But there will be representatives that go up. What if, here's the question, what if, because they still have the opportunity to be disobedient, what if they don't go up? Well, we see that in verse 17. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts there will be the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Folks, there will be disobedience in the millennial kingdom. Even though Jesus Christ is reigning on the throne in Jerusalem, there will still be people who disobey. Folks, all we know is that the water is one of those things that the human body needs. You need it to grow things. You need it to, for yourself and your sustenance. And he now, as a 
uh, an answer to your disobedience cut you off from water. You can't have any water. You don't have any water. Additionally, it's needed to produce to, for growth of produce. Mankind cannot survive without water. What is the consequence for not worshiping the master? No rain. This is a non-discriminatory exclusion. If you do not worship, you do not get rain. Rain is the picture of God's blessings and always has been a picture of God's blessings. Worship is necessary. This is one of the essential duties of God's people. There will be punishment. Listen to this. There will be punishment for those who do not participate in worship. It's essential now. That's why we gather. And most certainly in the future. And most certainly in the future. Verse 18, if the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Folks, no nation will be excluded. Why in the world would Zechariah put Egypt in here in particular? Why would he put them in there in particular? Because you know what? Egypt doesn't get rain. Already doesn't get rain. What it depends upon is the water that comes down the Nile River, or I should say up the Nile River. That's what it depends upon. And that rain actually falls in another country, as snow and such, but it comes down there. It picks out on Egypt in particular. They're pointed out that somehow God is going to put his hand on that Nile River. He's done it before. He's turned it to blood. He's turned it to other things. He's going to do something there, and there'll be no more flow to Egypt if they do not come up. Verse 18 makes sure even Egypt knows the consequence. But folks, it's not only no rain. Look what else happens. The plague will come upon the nation. God will also bring the plague upon the nation that doesn't come up and worship him. There's a divine consequence for each of us if we don't worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I think of this time in, in COVID, and, and I understand the struggle of getting to church, and, and there's, this happens throughout the whole nation, folks. I have friends that haven't opened up their church yet. I have friends who open up their church, and only half the people come back, where only a quarter of the people have come back. And, and all of these kinds of things, some people have not done that. I'm glad that you have. But if they're not worshiping God, how are they growing? And folks, I I was there with you back in March. I was watching on my live stream. And and after a while, I said, you know, there's nobody at church anyway, Donna. I mean, I said that to her. I said, there's nobody there anyway. So why don't we go? And so we came to Grace Church in April and May. And there was nobody here for a while. (laughs) Then everybody else woke up. <laughs> Shouldn't have told anyone. <laughs> and we couldn't go anymore. As you know, my wife has an autoimmune, so I couldn't be there. But guess what? That's what we need, each of us, all the time. No rain, and then the plague comes on them. If you don't have fellowship, folks, you begin to shrink. Maybe that's the plague. We shrink. 
Beloved, if you do not do those things, that is, if you're not worshiping, you're not fellowshipping, you're not attending, you're not growing, you're not reading your Bible, you're not doing those kinds of things, it's going to be a consequence. It's going to be a consequence. There's too many people that I've worked with in counseling that they've just moved away from the church, moved away from the Bible, moved away from the Scriptures, and, and that's what happens. They begin to shrink up. And your fellowship with Him is broken. You continue to remain in your sin, and there's consequences. Consequences. Let me take you to a broader look here, folks. God created Adam and Eve. He told them one thing. You cannot eat of this tree. Thank you, Mom and Dad. They ate of it. Consequences of their sin. I think of my first brothers that were there in history, Cain and Abel. And they're told to worship God in a particular way. And one did, and one didn't. There are consequences. Let's fast forward it. Take it to Jesus. Jesus comes, and in Matthew 5 through 7, he gives all of these things that we need to be doing. By the way, I've been looking at that lately because it's the Sermon on the Mount, and I can't wait to get there. And in each situation, he says, and the kingdom of God is yours, and the kingdom of God is yours, and the kingdom of God is yours. He says it over and over again. But at the end of chapter 7, but if you don't do these things, if you don't do these things, And so the warning is there as well. Then you get to the end of the book of Matthew, and he says, go therefore, Matthew 28, 18, go therefore and making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's what he tells his disciples. And the next verse is, teaching them to observe all that I have given you. Obedience again. Obedience again. And here we are the next time in Zechariah. And it's about obedience. I remember sitting at the table of one of our missionaries years ago. His son, I think, is at the master's university right now. But his son at that time was sitting in a baby seat. And he was disobeying his parents. And he just looked at his son. He said, son, obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings consequences. Ten minutes later, there was a consequence. It was making a lot of noise in the other room. (laughs) But you see, that's what it is. That's the way God handles us. And look at it. The, The picture is this. That's what he wants. He wants worship, and he wants it his way, not our way. He wants it his way. And that's what we come down to here in Zechariah. And I go, whoa, how important it is that we be worshiping the king today how important it is that we would obey. Now, please get this clear. There will be no punishment in the eternal state, but in the millennial kingdom, there is the possibility of disobedience and therefore punishment. Verse 19. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. The purifying of the nations is, is continues, and it's going to continue, and it's going to continue. Again, the repeat of the consequences and the indications of God's sovereign rule. They will be held accountable, 
And folks, we will be held accountable. And notice I put that in the we. I include myself. We will all be held accountable. Yes, there's grace. I know a friend of mine is going to come up and say, but Bill, what about grace? Amen. I'm so grateful for grace, aren't you? I am, I'm overwhelmed by grace. But there's still an accountability. There's still an accountability. Maybe it's loss of reward, whatever it is. These people will feel the wrath of God for their disobedience. The millennial kingdom will have those who still live in obedience. I believe that this repeating of the consequence shows significance of worship. And and I'm so glad, Grace Church, hey, here we are. We'd rather obey God than man. It is evil not to go up to worship. It is evil not to give thanks to the merciful God that we serve. Our author here said that the current day lack of, of one author, I'm sorry, one author said this, that the current day lack of of worship as an imperative is a striking contradiction to the wishes and the desires of God. I can agree with him and wholeheartedly say amen. Now the third step in this cleansing is the purification of the city of God. We see that in verse 20. We're just going to do break this down a little bit smaller here. In that day there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord. Horses bells? What in the world could this have to do? I know we have some horse people in here, and they're not horsing around, but they're horse people. Horse bells, really? You see, back in the temple days, the high priest had this written on him, holy to the Lord. It was emblazoned on his gold plate or on his turban, holy to the Lord. If you remember, the priest would go into the area of worship And he'd have a rope tied around his leg so that if he was going in there and he wasn't holy, he would die. God would take care of him and they'd have to pull his body out. That's an indication of the holiness of the man. That the holiness of the task that he's taking care of, that priestly office of worshiping God. When God's kingdom comes, listen to this, purification takes place. Even the common objects, the bells on a horse, that's a common object. In this millennial kingdom, will be recognized as holy unto the Lord. Holiness will pervade the community in Jerusalem. That's what this is a picture of. Even the horses have it on their bells. Jesus will be reigning from his throne there in Jerusalem. Jesus will be receiving the honor in this second advent, and he will not give that up. That's his. That's the honor that he didn't receive in the first advent. But he does now. These are not military horses, by the way, folks, just in case you were thinking that. No, no, these are just plain old horses. They're prancing around the city, do I think that Zachariah actually sees horses? I don't know. But whatever it is, it's prancing around the city and it has this sign on it, holy to the Lord. The bells indicate that the Lord God Almighty is encouraged or is blessed by those. Verse 20, let's go back there. And the cooking pots. 
in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Now, when uh, a few months ago, I was doing the cooking in my home, believe it or not. Scary thought. My wife survived. That's even better. <laughs> the cooking pots are just common pots. I mean, you know, you put them back in the washer, you clean them up again, you use them, you clean them, and that's the way it is. The cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls that are before the altar, the things that were holy in worship of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Your regular common cooking pot that's in your closet, and I don't even know the Oneida, I think is one of them. There's some names of cooking pots, but you know, they're just going to be holy unto the Lord. Here's the common pot of the household being compared to the sacred pots that are used in temple worship. They too will be holy unto the Lord. Verse 21. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts and all whose sacrifice will come and take them and boil in them. And I'll get to the rest of that at the end. All cooking pots in Jerusalem and throughout Judah will be set aside for the Lord. Everything is going to... I think what it's trying to show you folks, from the horse's bells to the cooking pots, from everything inside to everything outside, all of that is going to be dedicated for the Lord. Friends, let me tell you what Charles Feinberg had to say about this. You need to hear this quote. How holiness will pervade every department of life and every duty is indicated in the last two verses of this great book of prophecy. The people of God will know in that day the universal holiness, which has been the ideal of God for Israel through the centuries. Folks, this call to obedience here, this call to holiness here, is the ideal for all of us. The ideal is that we would not sin anymore. That's the ideal. Frankly, as I look through the Sermon on the Mount, that's exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is portraying. The kingdom of God is had through those who follow what he says, what he does. I left this last part of this verse here in verse 21, just so you could see that it's set apart, <clears throat> because at, at first when I read it, I kept saying, what in the world is this in here for? And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. I felt bad for the Canaanites, although I've never met one that I know of. But I don't think he's picking on the Canaanites. No, folks, I think he's picking on the unclean people because the Canaanites, is the Jews, when they came into the land, were the unclean people. And he's saying that about the unclean people. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. They will be banished. It could mean so many different things, but I just venture that it's unclean people. There will be none who are in the house of the Lord who have a depraved lifestyle. And you say, but how could you have a depraved lifestyle in the millennial kingdom? I, I believe you could, separated from God, separated from Jesus, you don't go up to worship, you could have a depraved lifestyle because that's our nature. 
That's where we run. If there were ever somebody in the city like that, it would mar the celebratory aspect of a millennial kingdom. By the way, this has nothing to do with ethnicity, only with spiritual characteristics. The characteristics of holiness and purity, of obedience, of heart and mind are demanded by God. Finally, Jerusalem can be called the holy city. Horse bells, cooking pots, but most of all people are holy to the Lord. I I look forward to that day. We can all be celebrating. I'd love to be one of the ambassadors going to Jerusalem to celebrate. God Almighty does not forget his people. Zechariah is the man's name who wrote this prophecy. Zechariah means Yahweh remembers, and he remembers his people. And I know I put an emphasis here on obedience today and on listening, but I also know the grace of my great God and Savior. And he knows because he knows our, our fallibilities. He knows how we can fail. And yet he still loves us, but he still calls us to obedience. He takes them into his kingdom and he takes us with great joy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your grace to us, sinners from the core, hearts that are despicable, hearts that are always running against you and away from you. Lord, give us hearts that want to run towards you, hearts of unselfishness, hearts of uh, obedience. Lord God, we are grateful for your word, grateful for the study in Zechariah, as it shows so much about a good God and how he is working things out. doesn't matter what's going on in a country or in the world. God is still reigning, and he will bring about his desires and his plans to fruition. We're grateful for that. We pray, Lord God, that you would be with this group of people today. Continue to grow them to be the people of God that you want them to be. We pray this in your name. Amen.